Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah today, and we're in chapter 3. Um, as we've learned already, when the Jewish people returned to their homeland after the Babylonian exile, they discovered that Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple, the city walls, the gates had all been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his army. Um, a lot of work needed to be done to rebuild. We learned in chapters 1 and 2 that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. After he heard that the Jerusalem walls were in ruins and the gates uh, had been destroyed by fire, he prayerfully waited four months until the right opportunity presented itself to ask the king's permission to go to Jerusalem and to build. Today we're in chapter 3, and it's quite a long chapter, uh, giving all the details and all the names of the people and families uh, who start rebuilding the ten gates that are around the city. Nehemiah's task uh, was huge, especially given all the challenges and all the opposition that he encountered. The job required a lot of organization uh, and definitely a team effort. Right? To accomplish this task, Nehemiah assigned specific work uh, places, like workplaces, to individuals and to families. You see it all throughout the chapter. This person's next to this person. These people are next to these people. Um, people were assigned to work on sections of the wall or gates near their own homes, which was ingenious because uh, it gave them motivation to finish the job, right? If you're building the wall right by your own house, it kind of motivates you to get it done for the protection of your own family. So it also avoided wasting time uh, traveling to other parts of the city. They're going to put up an image of the, uh, yeah, there they go. So I'm, there are 10 gates that are mentioned in chapter 3, uh, proceeding counterclockwise from the north wall of the temple. And the diagram that you see behind me uh, shows the walls and the gates that surround the city of Jerusalem. We're going to start at the top, and we're going to work our way around counterclockwise. Okay? There's the sheep gate. There's the fish gate. There's the old gate. The valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, and the inspection gate. So there are some fascinating revelations uh, when we go through and we study the names and we study the history of these 10 gates. There are some interesting parallels between these gates and the gospel. And there are some things we can learn regarding our own spiritual growth. So we're going to take a tour this morning around the city of Jerusalem, and we're going to focus on each of these 10 gates. And we start at the top on the north side of the city at the Sheep Gate, the Sheep Gate. So the very first gate mentioned in our scripture uh, is the Sheep Gate. It's in verses 1 and 2. It says this. 
Then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. So the sheep gate in Jerusalem was near the temple. Um, it was where the sacrificial animals were brought in uh, to be offered onto the altar. And it's appropriate that the priests would be the ones to build this particular gate. Because the sheep gate points to the, uh, the Lamb of God, right? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He is the door uh, through which everyone must enter in order to be saved. The sheep gate then points us to the cross, uh, points us to the sacrifice that was made for our sins. It is the starting point for the Christian life. But if you read the whole chapter, Nehemiah 3, uh, you will see that at the very end of the chapter, the sheep gate is mentioned again. So in our journey around the city of Jerusalem, which as we see, we will see, is a metaphor for our journey in our Christian life, we come full circle, right? And that's because everything begins and ends with Jesus' death and his resurrection, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, the second gate is the fish gate, the fish gate. It's in verse 3. It says this. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. It's called the fish gate because the fishermen of Galilee would bring their catch in through this gate to be sold, right? And it's interesting. Um, you remember that the first thing Jesus did with those who he saved was he sent them out to be witnesses for him, right? Jesus says, says this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So it's a natural progression in our Christian life that after experiencing the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would want to tell others about it. Studies have shown that believers who have been believers for uh, two years or less are the most effective at reaching people for Christ, which is crazy, right? You would think that the more mature Christians would be more effective at evangelism, but um, overall, that's not the case. There are exceptions, of course, but um, this is why it is important to be intentional about continuing to reach unchurched people, right? Because they are the most effective at reaching unchurched people, right? It's a paradox. But think about it. If, if they have a very real testimony of what Jesus has done in their life, and they probably still have many unchurched friends in their lives, right? Then truly, the Spirit can empower them to be fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, the words of Christ. 
I've seen it many times over the years. Like a previously unchurched person comes to faith in Christ and pretty soon like they're inviting their unchurched friends to church. Like I've even seen like a whole section of people. It's like them and all their friends who just start showing up. This is the message the Lord gives us as we stand before that second gate, the fish gate. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Next after the fish gate was the old gate, the old gate. Uh, It's in verse six, it says this. The old city gate was repaired by Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. So this gate speaks to us of the old ways of truth. Um, A young Christian, having experienced the sheep gate, right, then the fish gate, uh, soon sees the need for experiencing the old gate, learning the old ways of truth that never change. Jeremiah 6.16 says this. This is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path and you will find rest for your souls. So we're living in a day uh, where we tend to always be interested in the new thing, right? Whether it's the latest car, the latest gadgets, uh, updating our home, updating our clothes, updating our hairstyles. Uh, Things may change all around us, but the word of God remains the same, right? God may be calling us to something new, but he also calls us back. He calls us back to his long-established ways that never change, right? It's another paradox. We need to be open to the new things that God is doing, but at the same time, we need to seek the old paths. Jeremiah said that when we do, when we do this, we will find rest for our souls. In many ways, we need to restore the old virtues for the pattern of living that we have today. And I I think when I say this, I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, Because in many ways, since since my family and I moved here two years ago um, from a more urban setting, You all have taught me to seek the old paths and to walk in them so that we might find rest for our souls. The old gate. The old gate is important. Sheep gate, fish gate, old gate. The next gate is the valley gate. The valley gate. Okay. It's it's in verse 13. It says this. The valley gate was repaired by the people from Zenoah, led by Hanan. They set up its doors and installed its bolts and bars. So the valley gate led out of the city of Jerusalem and down into the valley of Hinnom. And if you look at the picture behind me, uh, you'll see that there's a long distance from the old gate to the valley gate. Um, For a new Christian, the Lord often allows a sort of honeymoon period 
um, where he's teaching us, where his presence uh, may be strong in our lives. This can go on for a while, but sooner or later, the valley gate comes. And the valley gate speaks to us of humbling and trials. Um, experiences in the valley where, that the Lord uses to grow us, to strengthen us, to build our dependency on him. Um, this is the gate through which we all eventually have to pass. The gate of trials, the gate of humility, um, and eventually the valley of the shadow of death, right? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley gate is never easy, and we need to remember uh, this. We need to remember that there is nowhere near as much growth on the mountaintops as there are in the valleys. The next gate, uh, after the valley gate, is the dung gate, which the preteen in me always likes to giggle when I say that, the dung gate. Uh, I told you all that my soul is about 13, so I'm like, <laughs> the dung gate. Okay, so it's in verse 13 and 14. Uh, it says this. They also repaired the 1,500 foot feet of wall to the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, the leader of the Beth Hakarim district. He rebuilt it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. So the dung gate uh, was where all of Jerusalem's trash was taken out. All right, they go through the gate, down into the valley and burn the trash. So if we look at the picture again, we'll see that there's a pretty good distance uh, from the valley gate to the dung gate, which unfortunately indicates that the valley can last some time, right? But the result of that experience is seen in the dung gate, right? Where the trash is taken out. The Lord uses the valley he uses the valley in our lives to clear out the trash so that true faith, pure faith, right, faith refined by fire is produced. And then we can begin to bear much fruit. Now, taking out the trash in our lives is never easy, right? But the benefits of this can be seen in the next gate, the gate that comes after the dung gate. If you look at the picture again, you'll notice after the dung gate, at this point of our Christian walk, like there's a dramatic turn, a dramatic turning of the corner that takes place. And up until this point, we've been moving downward, right? And the experiences that we've been having are, have been hard. But then we come to this point where there's a sharp turn and we begin to move up again. And it's fascinating, fascinating that these parallels between the gates of Jerusalem and our walk with the Lord. It's fascinating. 
After we've taken out the trash and turned the corner, we find ourselves at the fountain gate. The fountain gate. The fountain gate is in verse 15. It says this. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kolhosa, the leader of the Mizpah district. He rebuilt it, roofed it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam near the king's garden, and he rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. So the fountain gate is located near the pool of Siloam, and it was often used by people uh, for cleaning. Uh, as they, before they proceeded to the temple, they would go into the pool to cleanse themselves. And again, the fountain gate comes pretty quickly after the dung gate. And to reiterate, after a valley-type experience, right, where the trash in our lives is cleared out through the dung gate, faith comes, and then the fountains begin to flow. Right? The fountain gate refers to the same thing Jesus was speaking about when he said this to the woman at the well. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Again, Jesus made this statement in John 7. He said, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So the fountain gate reminds us of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. As we are continually filled with the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians, right? He says, go on, being filled with the Spirit, a fountain of living water, right? A river of living water flows from out of our hearts. The fountain gate. What comes right after the fountain gate is the water gate. The water gate. So the water gate led down into the Gihon Spring, uh, which was located next to the Kidron Valley. Uh, and it's, and it's, referred, it's, it's mentioned in verses 25 and 26. It says this. Palau, son of Uzai, carried on the work from a point opposite the angle in the tower that projects up from the king's upper house beside the court of the garden. Next to him were Padiah, son of Parosh, with the temple servants living on the hill of Awful, who repaired the wall as far as a point across the water gate to the east and the projecting tower. So the water gate, what's the water gate? The water gate is a picture of the word of God and its effect in our lives. Ephesians 5.26 says this, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Psalm 119.9 states that it is only through God's word that we can be clean. 
It says, how can a young person stay pure by obeying your word? So it's no coincidence that this gate comes soon after the fountain gate. The two go together. The water gate, the fountain gate, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who makes the Word of God come alive to each of us, right? The Spirit-wielded Word. And through the Word, the Spirit brings cleansing. He guides us. He directs our paths. He encourages our hearts, right? The next gate after this gate is the horse gate, the horse gate. It's in verse 28, it says this. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. So the horse gate was, a, was across from the king's stables. Um, this is where King David looked over his troops before they went out to engage the enemy. This is the gate where the men of Jerusalem would ride their horses through on their way to battle. So the horse gate speaks of warfare, right? Because horses were used in battle. And they became a symbol of war. We see this all the way uh, into Revelation, right? Revelation 19, 11 says this. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. So unfortunately, war is the nature of the Christian life. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.3. He says, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The Christian life is not an easy thing. If you live for God, it will cost you something. Um, and spiritual warfare is a requirement for every Christian, right? Because we're all in a battle, whether we realize it or not. It's also interesting that the horse gate comes after the water gate, right? The word. Why? Because as the word of God goes forth, spiritual warfare will increase. It is inevitable. The next gate after the horse gate is the east gate, the east gate. It's uh, mentioned in verse 29, says this. Next, Zadok, son of Immer, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. And beyond him was Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the gatekeeper of the east gate. So the east gate is located opposite the Mount of Olives, right? The Mount of Olives. Ezekiel 44, 1 and 2 say this, says this. Then the man brought me back to the east gateway in the outer wall of the temple area, but it was closed. And the Lord said to me, this gate must remain closed. It will never again be opened. No one will ever open it and pass through, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered here. So the east gate faces the Mount of Olives, and we know that when Jesus returns, he will return there, right? We see this in Zechariah 14, talking about the Lord's second coming. It says this, 
then the Lord will go out to fight against these nations as he has fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. And then Jesus will enter Jerusalem by the east gate. By the east gate. So the east gate represents the second coming of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul talks about a crown of righteousness that the Lord will give us on that day. It says this, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So that is the east gate. It is the gate of Jesus' second coming. And we need to be ready. Which leads to the tenth gate, the last gate. The inspection gate, which is mentioned in the last verse of the chapter, verse 31. It says this, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the wall as far as the housing for the temple servants and merchants, across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner. So in Hebrew, it's the Mifkad gate. Uh, and the word, the word has a military connection. Um, supposedly it was at the inspection gate that David would welcome home his soldiers from battle. He would inspect them, and he would thank them. This gate speaks to the examination of our lives before the Lord, right? When Jesus will judge us at the end of our lives, the inspection gate, right? 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged, We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. He says, As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. And as I said in last week's message, uh, we are called to live our lives in the light of eternity, Um, to leverage that which will perish for that which will not perish, to make an impact, some kind of eternal impact 
on the kingdom of God. On a larger scale, we know that when Jesus returns, there will be a judgment for the nations. Right? Acts 17, 31 says this. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. We see in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, this same judgment. When Jesus returns, he will separate those who enter into his kingdom, right, the sheep, from those who are going to everlasting punishment, the goats. And the teaching ends like this, says this, Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Let me ask you, do you understand that you do not and cannot earn your salvation? Do you understand that through faith in Jesus' completed work on the cross, we, who were once enemies of God, have been reconciled by the blood of Christ and adopted into the family of God? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he died and rose again? Have you chosen to follow him and make him Lord of your life? Do you understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? God has made only one provision for salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says this, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. God God has given a doomed world, a doomed world, good news. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is amazing, it is amazing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is embedded in the foundations of the gates of Jerusalem. Like long before Jesus ever physically came on the scene. Amazing, fascinating. A couple of other, other observations I want to make uh, with this chapter before we leave it. First, this was a team effort. The rebuilding of the gates and the walls. This was a team effort. If the walls and gates were to be rebuilt, then everyone would have to take part. Like, this is a picture of how the church is meant to operate. 
right? We all have, we all have different giftings, but they are for the edification of all. And the pastor's job, according to Ephesians 4, right, is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, right, the body of Christ. So right here, in this story, is the equipping of the saints, right there. The other thing I want to point out is this. When you read this chapter... Um, you, quick, you quickly realize, like, there's a lot of names here, uh, Hebrew names. Part of the reason I didn't have them read that, and I, I wanted to read it in, my, in the sermon, is I wanted to not scare them. <laughs> like, you need to go learn how to pronounce these, all these Hebrew names. And so, so um, the principle here is apparently God took the time to ensure that all of these names would be recorded. Like, the Bible doesn't just say, uh, and lots of people made repairs to the wall. No, it specifically names each person, each family that made repairs to the wall, to the gates, and that has been recorded for all eternity. All eternity. Right? It's the same with us. Our names, our lives, our actions are recorded by the Lord. And nothing that's done for the Lord is done in vain, even if no one sees it. So don't lose your heart as you are working for the Lord. Hebrews 6.10 says it like this. For God is not unjust, he will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the purity, for the simplicity, for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that the gospel was embedded in the foundations of the faith long before you were even born. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, even while we were dead in our sins, you died for us. We thank you that it is by your grace that we've been saved through faith. And this, this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that none of us, none of us, none of us can boast. We thank you that we, all of us, are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to do good things, to do things that you planned for us since the foundations of creation. God, thank you. We thank you for your beauty. We thank you for your majesty. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your grace. May you continue to be glorified in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.